Welcome to What Were You Thinking? My name is Laura Round and in this podcast I explore what has influenced politicians, opinion formers and business leaders. I'm joined by former Labour MP Ruth Smith, who is now CEO of Index on Censorship. We discuss the importance of free speech and the growing phenomenon of cancel culture. And we also covered Lawrence Fox as starting a new political party. And as some of you may know, Ruth had an extraordinary experience as a Member of Parliament and of quite a difficult time. She tells me about her battles with the Labour leadership under Corbyn to combat anti-Semitism in the party. It is not an easy listen. But we do finish on a more positive note about her love for the wider defence community. And there is one bit that I particularly loved, which is her advice to MPs, to pick three issues to campaign on. An issue that makes you cry, an issue that's important to your constituents, and an issue that you find intellectually stimulating. This episode is supported by Henham Strategy, a new and fast-growing strategy consultancy focused on helping their clients identify opportunities, overcome challenges, and achieve their strategic objectives. Henham are research-led in their approach and use their experience of policy, politics and the media to help their clients realise their public affairs and wider ambitions. Henham have extensive experience in and around Westminster, but are passionate about the world outside SW1. They work just as readily with local and regional clients as with national and international ones and are ready to talk to any of our listeners about their policy and political challenges and opportunities. What Were You Thinking is in partnership with the Big Tent Ideas Festival, the non-partisan festival of politics, culture, technology and fresh thinking. Ray, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. As you know, you know, we've we've never met in person. The weird thing about this pandemic is not being able to meet face to face and doing this virtually. But um, I obviously know a fair bit about you, but I'd love to hear a bit more about, you know, how would you describe your politics? So um, it's lovely to meet you too. And thank you so much for having me on. Like this is our new world, I think, but it is no, it doesn't really stop being surreal for any of us, I think. Um, In terms of my politics, five years ago, they'd have been completely normal Labour Party politics. I never considered myself a Blairite or a Brownite. Remember those fights as opposed to what we've seen in recent politics. But I was very, um, but I came from the trade union wing of the Labour Party. So I considered myself industrial Labour and very, very much um, fits in the Midlands. My politics is not Guardian reading. It's definitely Daily Mirror. And that's how I did. That's how I've always described myself. I'm, you know, Daily Daily Mirror trade union, Um, Labour Party, solid, normal, the backbone of what had been and will always be the Labour Party. And so how... um... How do you think it's changed then? It was considered normal five years ago. How is it not normal now? <laughs> I think we've seen from some of the most recent books um, that have been written about recent time in the Labour Party. The Labour Party does this every 30 years and has a very public spat and rift about different wings of the Labour Party. Um, I'm quite proud of the tradition that I come from. Um, it's the Hugh Gates girl, it's the Annie Bevin, it's the John Smith tradition in the Labour Party. Um, but that was definitely not the main voice that we had heard. That definitely wasn't what we were putting forward to the general public. And it was, although I still believe the core and the heart of the party, 
Um, it isn't. Uh, we were very much on the fringe over the last few years. For me, it's wonderful that that is changing, and it's the you know it's the party that represents real people. I know lots of people listening to this won't agree with me, but that was what my politics were. It was to you know I'm not a radical socialist, but I would consider myself myself a socialist. But my politics are about making sure that no one has to worry about how they're going to pay for a roof over their head, that they can feed their kids, they don't worry about their bills, and they get to go on a holiday with their family every year. Mm. That shouldn't be radical, but unfortunately right now it feels it. Mm. And so, as you know, I'd like to ask, you know, who, what and where has sort of impacted your thinking? So to to start off, you know, is there an individual or person that you'd say has played a an integral part in shaping your thinking and politics? Uh, so completely my mum, I should really say my mum and my grandmother. Um, I come from a really uh, working class background and uh, the women in my family are extraordinary. They're brilliant. And my mum definitely embodies that for me. So I get my politics from her. She is um She's a former trade union official. She's retired. But if I tell you that, um, you know, like most kids, they get when they go and ask for extra money for pocket money. Um, I had to do that, but it was on an annual pay round. So I had to put in a, um, I had to put in a formal um, pay negotiation in every April um, to justify why I needed a pay rise um, in order to make sure I'd started negotiating as a kid. So um, I used to base it on how much she spent at the hairdressers, um, what I thought the you know, what APR was at that point, and um, you know inflation, and what I thought my needs were going forward. So I had, but I had to do a written pay claim every year. That is that is brilliant. She was fantastic, and it also included. I started leafleting at eight because that was part of my pay negotiation with my my mum. Other people, you know, had to clean the house. I also had to do that. But um, in order to earn extra pocket money, I also delivered her Labour Party leaflets. So um, my politics came from this extraordinary woman um, who taught me, who exposed the world to me, who also, she was a single parent. Um, but she ins- she was such, and she is such an amazing woman, but she, um, I didn't know that I wasn't, uh, that it would be strange for me to go to university. I'm the first one in my family to have gone to uni. But from like three, that was a thing. Like I was going to university and I could be whatever I wanted to be and I could do whatever I needed to do. Um, and she empowered me. And she So she is extraordinary. And that came from my grandmother who um, was... In, um, so my grandmother, one of my earliest memories was on the council estate my grandmother lived in. Um, every uh, Wednesday afternoon the other little old ladies on her council estate would come to her house for tea and she was incredibly literate. So she would read all of their letters for them, their formal letters, Mm. and do what I would now call a surgery, but would read all of their letters and write the responses for them. So um, there were these women who were just, who were small P political, both members of the Labour Party or supporters of the Labour Party, um, who spent their lives helping other people, but honestly had never, um, no one had stood for elected office before, none of us had gone to university, it wasn't that kind of family. So, you know, they were amazing women who have um, inspired me and ensured that I could do what I've done. That is really incredible. That's really powerful. They are, I mean, 
they are they also you know amazing at chicken soup so from the <laughs> there is always food there is always laughter but there was love and their love in you know ensured that I got to do the things I did and what about um what about a place so you know was there a place that you have either visited or maybe read about that shaped your thinking so there's lots of very warm places in my life so you know my grandmother's front room and all of those things that were brilliant but um, in terms of the place and it makes me sound like such a political geek but I love Westminster I've always loved the image of the Houses of Parliament and as a geeky kid um, on a school trip when I was um, a teenager I um, snuck off um to go and see parliament now I'd been my mum had taken me actually on a tour of parliament when I was um I think eight and what is really funny is that um I had a conservative MP at that point uh or we had a Tory MP and um, my mum thought that she uh, my mum dressed up in twin set and pearls like did the full trying to be <laughs> posh in order to um, justify this tour of parliament that the MP was giving us um, I'm not going to name him, although I, he's now in the House of Lords and has been very lovely to me since I went, uh, when I was in Parliament. Um, but, um, and at the end, she just couldn't stop herself saying, well, of course I don't vote for you. Um, but it was... Um, uh, so I've been as a kid and had this wonderful experience because of him. Uh, but it just, for me, it was extraordinary that a kid from... That every one of my heroes had been in that building mm. that any yeah. and I think yeah my family are a family of immigrants you know we're Jewish immigrants and um the idea that people in there had been fighting for people like me that was a really extraordinary thing and so incredibly British and such a you know it's the iconic institution that just I've always been excited by it but also incredibly calmed by it it was my attachment to the UK always mm. so um uh yeah so I was like yeah I snuck off just so I could sit um in west and um I could sit staring at the building which is what I did for like an hour mm. completely and it's interesting that again your your mum clearly has a you know played a integral part in introducing you to the place and um I guess in the end obviously meant but you ended up being a representative and sitting in the house of commons and being able to stand up for the the things and values that you care about so it's an incredible story and it's quite it's quite touching that it started so so young so early on in your life it's amazing it was amazing but I but honestly it was more of sort of a tourist experience as opposed to anything you know in a it was an incredibly important thing for me, but I never thought I'd end up there because people like me didn't. So then, obviously, fast forward, you you got yourself elected and you you became an MP yourself. I mean, what was what was the biggest takeaway from your time in Parliament? Oh, so um, Parliament's like Hogwarts, and we said it in jest, but actually, it re- you get lost. Feels like the corridors move all the time. Um, the only thing that made me feel um, better about the fact that I was still getting lost was the um, was I got uh, I spoke to a, an MP that had been there for decades and was like, yeah, I'm still getting lost. That's fine. <laughs> but what was all the rules that exist exist for a reason, and that isn't clear to you when you arrive. Like it makes no sense why you don't clap 
um, in the chamber, except you don't clap because then it becomes a clapathon and how long you have clapped for and mm. who, you know, you know, loyalty to your leader and all of that stuff. Um, you don't speak in certain debates until the end of the debate because if you've got if you speak too often, then it's not fair on everyone else, and there's six hundred and fifty of you, and there's some people. <laughs> I say this as a former politician, but there's some people who just love the sound of their own voice, and so have to speak in the chamber every day, and then. I, I only chose to speak in the chamber when I thought I was contributing to a debate or I had something very specific I needed to raise or wanted yeah. to raise. So um, I would hope that that meant that my voice was heard when it needed to be heard as opposed to just speaking for the sake of speaking so that I could talk about my Hansard mentions, which a lot of MPs feel the need to do. Mm. Um, and also I think one of the things that is bizarre about Parliament until you're there, I mean, obviously for your constituents they think that everything's about the chamber um but the first the two pieces of advice I got when I arrived one was from um one was from Harriet Harmon and the other one was from uh, Rosie Winston and Harriet said to us uh, as new MPs there is no such thing as an apprentice MP your constituents haven't got time for that so you are now an MP so get on with the job but you've got to learn really quickly mm. Um, so you have as much right to be here as everybody else because the electorate sent you here. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that came from Rosie that was really that was difficult to get your head around, but was so true, was that um, Parliament's like a multi-act play, but all the acts are, um, are happening at the same time, <laughs> and the chamber is just one stage. Yeah. But you've got the committee room and your meetings and the media and your writing and your constituency and 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 and. Yeah. And there's no job description, so you sort of arrive in a, oh, all right, what is this job? And everyone does it differently, and they do it differently because of who they are and their passions, but also because of where they represent. So, you know, I worked 100 hours a week. Other MPs, you know, could have full-time jobs as well as being, being MPs. And I was like, I don't understand how you had, never mind the capacity, but it was like, I don't understand where the time comes from. Yeah. Because um, I couldn't, I, you know, sleep is something that... I've sort of been re- reintroduced to since I lost the election, which is quite nice. I mean, sleep's good. Sleep right? is great, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't realised how much I miss sleep. So yeah. um, so Parliament is weird. The other thing that I um, that I love about Parliament, but that was unexpected, was how many friends I'd get from the other side. Mm. Um, so the relationships that the cross-party relationships that you build and look I had a very strange time in parliament for lots of different reasons but the support that I received from across the house not just on my own side and on occasion definitely not on my own side was one of the most surprising things that I always thought it was really weird when I heard about um Labour and Tory MPs going on holiday together um which is a thing Mm. um and I you know and yet I've I found myself going on holiday with one of my Tory friends. So, um, but I never realised how, you know, we go at each other in the chamber, we go at each other at committee rooms and in the media and then happily going, you know, with some, not with everybody, but going eat together and socialise together. And, yeah. you know, you're one of 650. It's a very weird job. Only the people doing the job really understand what the experience is like. Yeah. And the support there, you know, it can be a really lonely place. Mm. You've got to actively make it not lonely. And it's the um 
and you'll find connections with people in really unexpected ways and places. Yeah. Do you think part of why it's so surprising, and I mean, this is this might be changing now, but most people probably don't publicise it. You know, you're probably not going to shoot from the rooftops to your voters and your members and your constituency like that. You might be best friends or really close to, in your case, a conservative, and that you know. Obviously, as you say, it happens a great deal. It's just not talked about much. Do you think that's part of it or is that is that not right? I think there's, there's part of that. There's also, I mean, we saw some people in the last, in the last parliament say that, you know, they could never be friends with Tories. Mm. Regardless of why people, of what political party, overwhelmingly, for the mainstream political parties, most people join the party because they want to change the world. We just argue about how we want to do it. Exactly, yeah. Um, so, you know, British politics has, broadly speaking, always been moderate in the traditional sense of the word, um, just centrist and moderate and calm. Um, and I think that we, I'm more than happy to argue. It's, in our, I think, in my DNA, who knew? But um, I'm more than happy to have the debate and the argument. And in fact, I'm much more comfortable with people who have proper politics, ideological politics, because I understand exactly where they're coming from. Now, I may disagree vehemently with everything that Michael Gove says, but at least I know I'm going to and that there is an ideology behind it. And that he and I and I, you know, from a personal perspective, Michael's always been incredibly kind to me. And there is something very, um, almost reassuring. It's people who haven't got any politics who end up in Parliament for, for any party. I find really confusing. It's like, why are you here? Mm. There is a leadership role. There is a not from a dogma perspective, but in a what do you actually believe and what do you want to change? Because otherwise, it's a really hard job to do. So, what is what is your driving passion to have got you here? Because there are easier ways to earn a living and there are easier ways to arguably make a difference. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's tough gig. Parliament is definitely a tough gig. You you alluded to it earlier that you had a slightly unusual time and experience in, in Parliament. And um, I'm assuming that's due to a large amount of abuse that you received, which became quite, you know, public and uh, received a lot of media attention and became part of just the wider um, media storm around um, Jeremy Corbyn and and um, anti-Semitism and also obviously just other growing abuse that MPs received. You once said in an interview that things had got worse since Joe Cox, um, the Labour MP, when she was murdered in 2016, saying that, you know, this is a quote, the stuff that might have shocked us four years ago is now normal and the stuff that shocks us now is absolutely terrifying. Yep. Do you want to just elaborate a bit on that and, you know, yeah, in your experiences in that area? I think it's um, it's really easy to forget quite the trauma of that month. We talk about how much politics has happened in the last five years and there's been so much politics. But in the month of June 2016, we had... Joe was murdered by a right-wing fascist on the streets of the UK. We had a political assassination on our streets. Mm. Two weeks later, we had the Brexit referendum, whichever side of the divide you fall on, that was traumatic politically. Um, 
not as traumatic as it became, but it was traumatic politically. And then um, we had the prime minister resigning, and then and and at the same time, the Labour Party, the parliamentary Labour Party, trying to remove the leader of the Labour Party. Um, and all of those things happened. And from a personal perspective, that isn't usually in that. I also had the launch of um, Jeremy Corbyn and Shami Chakrabarti's inquiry into anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And there was an incident of anti-Semitism at that launch, which I was the target of, which was you know horrendous. But that period, I mean, context is always everything, but that period of time was... I didn't think I'd ever experienced anything like it, but unfortunately, politics became really difficult. You know, politics never got easier after that. Mm. Politics re- remained very difficult and very toxic in the country. So, um, there were things. There was I mean, what we've seen is banter becoming abuse, becoming threat, overwhelmingly towards female policy. I mean, I think it's true across the piece, but in terms of politics, overwhelmingly targeted at female politicians and the level of misogyny compounded by, if you're not um, compounded by either attacks on your race, on your identity or on your age. Um, you know, Diane Abbott gets a ridiculous, horrendous, awful volume of racist attacks online more than anyone else. Um, what I and Luciana Berger and Louise Elman and Margaret Hodge experienced was from within our own movement, which is why it was so shocking for us. Um, and it was grim. I mean, absolutely grim from um, just in terms of the... And, and you, a lot of it you don't think about until you've gone... You know, I just had to power through, so I didn't think about the impact of it at the time. Although the impact on my family and on my friends and those that cared about me was awful. Um, but you know, I had to move home because the on police recommendation because they I'd lived at my house in London for so long it was too easy to find the address and they didn't think they could keep me safe there. Mm. So um, I had to move. I wasn't from 2017 until March of this year. I wasn't to go on public transport. I wasn't to be by myself. So going for, you know, normal human stuff like going for a walk or going to the shop everything had to be planned Mm. Um, and all because of the level of threat that I got and there is something very terrifying and there is something actually fundamentally wrong with our security systems as well because there is uh, you automatically get security uh, um, if you hold certain offices of state in politics that's done on the position you hold not on the level of threat against you Mm -hmm. Whereas at certain points over the last five years, um, specific MPs, and not always the Jewish MPs, but specific MPs had a higher level of threat faced towards them than anybody else with no additional security potentially and arguments about the security that we had to have. Um, Luciana had to have more arguments than anybody else because it was usually her that was first and then the rest of us unfortunately would follow. Um, And it was both shocking and became normal like I had to have a safe um, a security room in my office that my staff could hide in if it was under attack now things like that that my staff had to have security training now that's just grim because I was you know MPs are rarely in their own offices they're sort of on tour when they're in the constituency um 
but it was also in terms of my engagement with my electorate and I'm quite a people person I door knock and campaign every weekend because that's apparently I'm weird um but um we could only tell people where I'd been not where I was going yeah so I would always go to like you know if I was going to a fate right um or a, you know if I was going to a Christmas market I would be one of the first people there so then we could because otherwise people don't there isn't also the publicity that goes alongside you and you know the openings being done by the MP or whatever this event's hoping so I couldn't promote things on my social media until after I'd been there because otherwise the police needed to be there and that's just grim for them and I was never going to be toured around but police had to be at every one of my surgeries just in case and yet my surgeries were appointment only so I mean so it affected every bit of how I had to do my job every but we had a workaround for everything because I was not going to let anybody else win or tell me how yeah. I was going to live my life. It's um it's really astounding hearing you talk about it cuz I mean I knew it was bad. Uh, I knew it was awful, I knew it was horrendous and but still I I don't think if I'm being honest with myself I don't think I realized that extent of sort of how bad it was and I'm just just really sorry you had to go through that it's it's just it is just absolutely horrendous um and I think it really um speaks volumes to your strength and also you know some you know colleagues you you mentioned earlier in how brave you and and they were and are in in speaking out about this and also obviously as you say sort of the, the shock of it coming you know it, it's shocking whoever it comes from but you sort of say also the fact that it is caught of guard or weren't expecting it to come from within your own party and movement to which you've been a part of for so long and as you say you know you were <laughs> delivering leaflets since the age of eight I mean um that is just uh, that does add an extra layer of of shock to it and the fact that you went out and publicly called out your own party leader um, for not standing up to this more you know that is a that is a very hard thing to do so anyway I think you're you know that's incredibly incredibly brave but I'm just wondering as to you know we've we've heard so much about you know Corbyn's um, lack of sort of response in it and what what was your experience with him and uh, you know based on conversations you had and asks you may to sort of get him to actually speak out and show some leadership on this issue oh my level of frustration was just at points at peak I tried everything so I was um I was vice chair of the parliamentary labor party so I would meet with um with him every week when he when he turned up to the scheduled meetings um and I raised it every week from January 2016 because from a personal point of view, but also from, from on behalf of my community, mm. um, Jews, I did not want anti-Semitism to be an issue in the Labour Party for every reason, not least the fact that I am Labour at my core. I happen to be Jewish. I never got elected as a Jewish MP. Yeah. Um, and resented every day that I felt that they were making me a Jewish MP. Um, but I was quite clear if they were going to make me a Jewish MP, they were going to rue that day. Um, so I, from January 2016, where there was, um, there were 
there was an, some unfortunate incidents at Oxford Union Labour Club, and there was an inquiry going on um, by Baroness Royal, who was an amazing woman. Um, so I was raising it every week from then because I just desperately needed it to go away. But also, unfortunately, there was always something new to raise with him about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. And I tried everything. I tried rational, logical. I tried evidential. I tried irrational, emotional, emotive, anger, I stoic. I tried every emotion, every way to engage with some. Yeah, you know, like I tried desperately to find what would work with him to make him listen to the fact this was a problem and it needed to go away. And I failed miserably because there was nothing I could say to him that would make him listen on this issue. There was nothing where I could get any empathy about what was going on. There was nothing I could say to him that shocked him or interaction or, you know, nothing, nothing at all. Um, and in in meeting after meeting, I mean, it didn't matter. On occasion, I'd be on the verge of tears because something would be so horrendous. Um, and that yeah, there was nothing. But he once said to me that um, I'd raised an issue. Uh, I'd started that day. I'd had a spike of abuse uh, because he'd, he'd appointed a new chair of the disputes panel um, within the Labour Party to determine what was and wasn't anti-Semitism. And um, I, my, my social media feed was full of people saying, I can say whatever I want about you now because uh, there's no way I'm going to get done for it, basically, was the premise. Mm. Not quite in that language, but that was basically, and I had a spike and it was, a, it was on Wednesday because meetings were always on Wednesday. And I said, look, I'm getting yet more abuse because of the decision you've made today. And um, he stared at the wall and said, I'm really sorry, Ruth's getting more abuse. <laughs> like, oh, there is nothing. I don't know what I meant to say. I, mm. you know, I just didn't know how to get through. And when I, um, and after Luciana left the Labour Party and then Louise Elman left the Labour Party, and, it, and honestly, it felt like it was just Margaret Hodge and I alone against the world. Um. That was both frustrating and the idea that I'd be silenced was just never going to be a thing either. So I just didn't under, you know, from a political point of view, I never understood why they didn't want to make the issue go away. From a practical point of view, give me something so that, you know, people like me would stop shouting at you. Give me something to make this misery go away. So, I, you know, you get to the point, so I don't understand. I genuinely. So I still struggle to understand why you'd have let this political crisis go on for as many years. Um, yeah, it should have never have gone on for more than days, never mind years. Yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you on that because it it, it is mystifying and um, why they wouldn't want that problem to go away. And um, yeah, I, I yeah, I just it's interesting to hear that you are still grappling with that question as well. Well, I think. There's a really interesting. I haven't read all of Owen Jones's book because I think I'd struggle with the having lived through so much of it. I'd, I'd struggle with other people's perceptions of it. But there was a paragraph put up on social media in the last couple of days where it 
about the adoption or lack of adoption when Jeremy Corbyn tried to um, not adopt the international internationally recognised definition of anti-Semitism with all of its examples. Mm. And he tried to rewrite the, what should be the definition of anti-Semitism for yet another political realm. And uh, Owen Jones writes that um, it is be, um, that Corbyn made it clear that it was because he was worried that his previous, his and Seamus Milne's previous writings and comments would um, be at odds with the definition of anti-Semitism, which I think is basically where we ended up. Um, and if you look at how Jeremy dealt, but you know, from a personal point of view with people like me, but also you know, the mural and the definition of Ira mm. and his, um, his authoring a book, um, a forward, um, and who he shared platforms with and who he called his friends and how he couldn't recognise the hurt and misery. And I think one of the things that really angers me in all of this and that was missing from the debate. I previously had worked for CST, the Community Security Trust, and I was really aware that every time anti-Semitism was on the front page of a national newspaper, there was going to be an increase in anti-Semitism because yeah. when you talk about it, yeah. it leads to an increase. Yeah. And I knew that there were Jews who were going to get hurt. There were people who were going to get hurt because of our failure to deal with this issue and the callous way in which it was being discussed in the Labour Party. And there's someone who I know very well who's, um, I think his son was seven at the time, got beaten up by a teenager on the way to school. Mm. Um, and he was wearing a yamulke. And um, it isn't that I blame Jeremy Corbyn for that. What I blame him for is allowing an environment where anti-Semitism became fair game. Yeah. I don't blame him for the actions of a teenage boy. But he definitely opened Pandora's box and allowed a form of racism to become normal in British society again. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. It is insanely depressing. Insanely depressing. Moving to slightly more positive things. Um, yeah. Keir Starmer. <laughs> so you know, yeah. Corbyn's <laughs> gone. You you know, it was a fresh slate for the Labour Party. Um, and obviously one of the things he did very quite early on was sack Rebecca Long-Bailey. So it was um, Maxine Peake had written a column or had done an interview where she had linked George Floyd's murder to the IDF oh, right. and to the Israeli uh, intelligence services. Maxine Peake apologised, um, but Rebecca Long-Bailey tweeted about i mean it just it was also unnecessary by the way from becky which was it was a weird thing for her to have done but um but Keir acted quickly Mm. very 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 quickly what does that tell you about um you know how the party's changing and you know what uh yeah what what are your what are your takeaways from that um overwhelming relief i mean you use the word it's the word i've been using about the labor party since april um, genuine relief that this issue is going to go away soon. The um, uh, we've still got the Equality and Human Rights Commission report into the Labour Party being statutory racist or not. Mm-hmm. Um, that is imminent. Um, but I can't tell you how wonderful it is, 
and how joyous it is that this issue might soon go away. Um, that I've got a leader of the Labour Party who is desperate for it to go away and doesn't want this kind of politics anywhere near him. Um, and that normal politics can resume. I, you know, I, one of the things I found most difficult uh, when all of this was going on was this is not what I wanted to be talking about or campaigning on or doing. And it was draining, it was emotionally draining. And I had so much else I wanted to do and to talk about. Um, and I'll get to do that soon. So I think that's the, um, and this will just be a horrible chapter in Labour Party history that we can turn the page on and move on. Yeah. Um, Keir has been, I mean, Keir sent a message, I think, not just by, by his statement when he first became leisure, but also some of the appointments and everything he's done since. And, in, and also the statement of having me introduce him for his conference speech last week. Mm. So, I mean, if that wasn't saying to the world that the Labour Party has changed and that it's under new leadership, then nothing else will. Because I think we can all agree it's unlikely, A, that Jeremy Corbyn would have asked me and B, that I'd have wanted to do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. That's, um, so, you know, the Labour Party is a relief. And from, I mean, some of your viewers, some of your listeners, they may not agree, but the Labour Party being... Um, Back in the political game, the polls demonstrating that the Labour Party is a viable political entity again after our results in December and then the worst result for the Labour Party since 1935. All of those things, that's a relief. And, and actually, really good for the country to have proper, competent opposition and challenge, and I hope electoral challenge at the next general election. And um, you are now... CEO of Index on Censorship, which is an organisation which campaigns for freedom of speech, which is very cool. Uh, why did you decide to get involved yeah. with this organisation? I am very, very lucky. I have um, uh, I have a wonderful board, and Trevor Phillips is my chair, um, and I've got and Kate Mortby is my vice chair. So I am extraordinarily lucky. Um, I have always, yeah, before I got elected, I ran, um, I helped run Hope Not Hate, the anti um, extremism, anti political extremism campaign. Um, so the, the human rights field and campaigning has always been really important to me. I think one of the things that's really missing from political debate and the level of political education at the moment is what is first of all how we speak you know a lot of this conversation has been how we speak to each other and digital citizenship and what that looks like how you know responsible citizenship in the 21st century but also there is not you know there is not the right not to be offended there is not the right but there's also not the right to incite hate and we've got to find grown-up ways of protest and engagement and debate and conversation and not just shut each other out, which feels increasingly where we are. And that's from a British context and an American context, but also there, you know, Index on Censorship has a beautiful heritage. It was established 50 years ago to be um, a voice for Soviet dissidents to have their, to have their writings published mm. Um internationally when they couldn't be heard locally and then it would be passed around in those countries we'd get it back into the country so it was a vehicle to provide hope and to exp and to shine a spotlight on repressive regimes what we're seeing with the Uyghurs in China or um, what's happening with the elections in Belarus the number of you know um, Oban in Hungary 
even Trump, 2,300 tweets since Trump became the uh, Republican nominee in 2016 have been have targeted individual journalists and free speech. Mm. I think yeah, there is a debate and a protection of free speech that we need to have. And we've got to remember why some of our human rights are so incredibly important to us. Um, and so being part of that conversation is um, is both incredibly challenging with everything that's going on, but a huge amount of you know, heartbreak, for especially when we're talking about the Uyghurs and what's happened in Hong Kong, but also a lot of um, potential and a lot of um, a lot of work to be done. And I don't, you know, I'm not one to be bored. So um, <laughs> that's my new job. I'm really lucky and um, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Yeah, no, it's that's a really awesome gig and um, you are the perfect fit for it based on you know, everything we've discussed. I and mean, what's your view on, on cancel culture that sort of seems to be becoming an increased phenomenon at the moment? I do. I'm really worried that we're heading for a political dialogue and we've seen it in the last couple of days in the media, actually, where having um, wanting to have a fight about having wanting to establish a culture war especially in the british political context is so incredibly dangerous for who we are um so i think that there is we've got to find space for conversation and for debate that doesn't just lead to uh, social media pylons and people being silenced or feeling they've been silenced and one of my big concerns about a lot of the debates that are happening right now is that they're happening to people that they're about rather than having the people who are on the front line, so to speak. Their voices aren't being heard. So one of the things that I think is incredibly important is making sure their voices are heard. Mm. Um, and it is creating a space in which to do that. I think Twitter, you know, I think Twitter can be incredibly important for immediate news and, you know, and for political comment and for issuing a press release, really. It's now the new version of a press release. But it can also, it is not the right forum for political debate. It is not the right forum for uh, nuance. 140 characters does not give you nuance. Yeah. Um, and so we've got to find different ways of how we speak to each other and how we have grown up conversation. Because I'm really, it's so easy to say, um, you know, it's so easy to shut down debate when we probably never needed it more. I also, from a political point of view, I'm worried that the um, that the left who have all, always used our core human rights as ways to change the world um, through protest, through free speech, through freedom of association, they're the ones that are going. We want more censorship, and we want restrictions online, and we want you know we want the government to protect us. And you've I mean the hard left, and you've got the hard right going, but it's more free speech. I can say whatever I want and I can offend you and I can do whatever I want because that's my free speech. There's been a political flip and I think that that is bizarre. Also, neither of those two positions is what we should be talking about. We should be looking to see how we can have intelligent debate about the future and about where we want the country to be as a collective, not at odds with each other because the majority, the overwhelming majority of people sit in the middle of our politics and sit in the middle of, you know, our are moderate and liberal and normal yeah. as opposed to the fringes and if we're if we're not careful because of the way in which we engage on social media it's the fringes who have their voices heard yeah and i worry about that a lot 
Yeah, I I like what you just said about Twitter, and I totally agree with that. And and it's kind of one of the things I really like about podcasts, um, in that it allows people to you know expand on their thoughts and to explain things you know with more nuance, as you say, which the hundred and forty characters on Twitter just doesn't allow uh, anyone to do. Um, so you know, it's one of the reasons I've always listened to podcasts and is quite keen to. Uh, start a new one Um, and one of the things that obviously has been in the news uh, well whilst we're recording this it's just um, uh, sort of it's a week before airing so um, we've just seen the presidential debate um, which (laughs) wasn't you know, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Like, there wasn't much space for anyone to actually expand on their thoughts. Yeah. And then also, you have, you know, Lawrence Fox recently launching this party, new political party, to fight for culture wars. I mean, what was your reaction to that? I think that I think it's potentially dangerous, but more importantly, the vacuum that is created. The vacuum that someone like Lawrence Fox is trying to fill or Nigel Farage historically or whoever it may be they're trying to fill is typically being created because the mainstream political parties um, aren't doing something that they should be doing, in my opinion. So there's got to be, I mean, as a country, we've always wanted strong leadership. Um, we embrace strong leadership and we embrace... Um, I think most people, understandably, they just want to know how they're going to pay their bills and they want to make know their families are safe and secure and that they can get a doctor's appointment when they need one. Yeah, they're just the fundamental, normal human living things. And there is something not quite right with our politics at the moment. And the Brexit, I mean, it wasn't even the Brexit debate, it was the post-Brexit referendum debate, what's happened since. There was never really a conversation about what type of country we wanted to be after Brexit. There was just people shouting at each other and overwhelmingly men shouting at each other. And I think that that's just, that created a level of toxicity that we are not yet through. And I and we're seeing some of it with people's reactions to the COVID regulations because we're, and we're not yet through. So I think that there's, um, we've got the, the mainstream politicians have to step up and have to make sure that they're, doing the basics well that they're competent and capable and they're also relevant and approachable and understandable and I'm not quite sure we're at that point yet and so there is a huge job of work to do and in terms of those people who are trying to exploit a gap I know I'm not talking about Lawrence Fox specifically but there have always been people who wanted to exploit people's fears and that's what it fundamentally comes down to for their own political gain and we need to stand up against that and we need to do it collectively regardless of which political party you're a member of so we've discussed the person and place that have impacted your thinking and politics to an extent we haven't discussed an object yet so um <laughs> i'm curious to hear whether there is an object in your an object in your life that you've uh, you've you know feel retrospectively has sort of impacted your life uh, and and pot- potentially your your politics even. Oh, so I really should say 
um, uh, you know, a Stoke-on-Trent mug, which obviously I have in front of me right now. Um, but actually, what I'm um, just, I'm not even going to say, an ob- I don't think you can really call this an object, but um, when I was in Parliament, I was privileged to spend a huge amount of time with our armed forces. I was vice chair of um, the armed forces group in charge of the Navy, um, and I was on the Defence Select Committee. And um, one of the things um, that I had the privilege of doing was visiting the Queen Elizabeth aircraft carrier. Um, And that, which, so I would say that's my object. I mean, I'm totally torn because um, officially or unofficially, HMS St Albans was my ship um, because they gave me the ensign at the end of the evening, which is on display in my house. Um, and uh, I, I had, um, I had, and I was spoiled for the things I got to do. I did, uh, I did survival training with the Royal Marines in the Arctic. I spent a, I spent fifteen days a year um, in different parts of the world with our troops every year when I was serving as an MP. Um, but for me, and um, the, uh, I got given for my 40th birthday last year one of the original brooches that they had commissioned for the Queen Elizabeth class carrier. Um, and it's incredibly special to me. I mean, the, the aircraft carrier is amazing. And I've sat in the F-35 that uh, is going to um, form part of um, our defence the aircraft carrier is an extraordinary piece of engineering. It f- defines for me the defence family because the people that have made that platform are just as valuable to us as the people who are going to serve on that platform. Mm. Um, and it's an amazing piece of kit. We should be so proud of it and for the people who are going to serve on it. Mm. Um, so for me, it just sort of... Um, I have many happy memories of being a member of Parliament and most of them... Um, relate to my time doing military, uh, doing uh, time with our military and the um, and our wider defence family. So, um, yeah, for me, my object and and did define my part. I, mean, I was always more of a Ernie Bevin rather than Nye Bevan politician. So, um, for those of you who know your history, your your Labour Party political history. So, for me, the um, uh, our, our armed forces are incredibly important um and yeah i had so much fun spending time with them yeah that is um that is awesome and um those 15 days a year i mean that, it, that they sound they sound fascinating and i love that that program exists um which is you know i, I know quite a few mps who've taken part in it and are just blown away and um um yeah i i, I was um had the pleasure of uh, being a special advisor to the Secretary of State for Defence which sadly was too short uh, <laughs> in my opinion it was cut it was cut short um, but um, that was yeah I, I can relate to what you talk about because uh, I yeah I was blown away every day by the the things and, and stories and people um, I came across it, it is a it is an incredible community it is, and I think that's the bit that's so that was so extraordinary for me because the stories you hear are amazing, and when you travel around the world to meet them, uh, because I got to do both, both from the Armed Forces Parliamentary Scheme, but also from the Defence Select mm. Committee. So I got to do, I got a double here. But when you, um, but if you go to Barrow and meet the people that are building the next nuclear deterrent, 
if you go to um, so the person in charge of um, the designing the upgrade for our Challenger tanks, he started as an apprentice working on the on Challenger One, and now he's doing the upgrade to Challenger Two. So, I mean, he's, I mean, it's just amazing. And I think when I went to tell when I went to Telford and I met the people working on our tanks, one of the things that um, really struck me is we were talking about um, they know what they're doing. Obviously, they're experts in their field, but they're very, very conscious of the fact that they are building platforms that British men and women will be serving on and that will be protecting them. So they're very aware of the responsibilities of what they're doing. Mm. Um, And during Iraq and Afghanistan, when we needed new kit really, really quickly, and they were working, I can't imagine how many hours to ensure that we had the kit to deploy with our armed forces. They knew it was to keep our boys and girls safe. And, you know, so that combination, that wider defence family is so incredibly important for me. Um, and you only get to see things like that as an, um, a member of parliament. You know, it's a privilege, it's an honour, but you don't get to see that in normal day-to-day life. Yeah, totally. I'm just going to move on to the quick fire questions um which yeah. to date have proven not to be that quick <laughs> but we'll so <laughs> just sort of some slightly more random group of questions that I just like asking you know we talked you know you talked a lot about your time as an MP and uh, also sort of being able to reflect on it um see already this is not this is a very long-winded question already here you go it's classic example um you're able to reflect on your time as an mp as well which is quite a sort of unique you know perspective um what do you think are the most important traits that a politician should have or you know what what makes a politician good as it were so i think every politician should campaign on three issues like you need to uh, you need a huge amount of um of narrow knowledge on every issue because you never know what your constituents going to ask you tomorrow. Mm. Um, but I think that there's three issues that ever that everyone should campaign on. There, you should campaign on an issue that makes you cry, an issue that is important to your constituents, and an issue that you find intellectually stimulating. And as a member of parliament, that should see you through mm. um, and give you some focus. It's a really weird job because you don't. Um, it's easy not to have focus. Uh, because there's so many different things you could do. There's so many opportunities you can have. Um, and unless you add focus to your own world, you're going to get lost in the Westminster bubble. Um, so um, I campaigned on holiday hunger because it made me cry. What happens to children who qualify for free school meals during the school holidays? And genuinely is heartbreaking. Um, the potteries, because that was incredibly important for my constituency. Um, and defence because I was intellectually fascinated and uh, stimulated by doing it. So um, I think that that makes you a, a well-rounded MP if you choose three issues for different reasons. I also think there is a level what I, I never understood and was very confused when I was exposed to Parliament um, is that some politicians don't like people. It is so the wrong job if you don't like people, if you have got no human skills. Yeah. Um, and there are too many people in Westminster who seemingly don't like talking to other people. It's like, they're, they're going to get a different job. Please go and get a different job. Because <laughs> um, it's just wrong. So I think there is a, it's got to be, you know, of course, intellectually robust, 
and policy. But if you're not doing this job because you care about people, then it is simply the wrong job for you. So go and do something else. And and fundamentally, by the way, it's not a job, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. So, you know, you hand over your whole life to it. Your family make huge sacrifices to to enable you to do it. Um, It's all-encompassing. So if you don't like people, why are you doing it? Yeah, that's a very, very good point indeed. Um, Who would you say your favourite non-Labour politician is? Oh, I'm going to get in trouble. There's no way to answer that without me getting in trouble. You so, uh, list it more I, than one. Okay, that's fine. Because I'm going to have to list because it will confuse everybody. So, um, Johnny Mercer and I are known on the pages of the Telegraph to be very good friends. Um, I, um, but uh, Tom Twigginer and um, Anne Marie Trevelyan. So I'm talking different wings very clearly of the Conservative Party yeah. here. Um, are two people who I am so incredibly fond of. Um, but then I also, um, because of the defence work that I've done, I mean, I've got, I did a lot of cross-party work, which is why I'm going to get so much in, tr- in so much trouble. But um, uh, James Gray and Bob Stewart adopted me um, when I arrived in Parliament. They were incredible supports, mm. and I adore both of them. And Bob Stewart, who, you know, people have lots of different views of, but one of the things that's been so touching for me, Bob rings me every other month since I lost my seat just to make sure I'm all right. Wow. Um, that is a lovely, human, wonderful thing. Yeah. Unnecessary. I mean, yeah. So I have people who are, um, I am very fond. I mean, I disagree with them all fundamentally a lot, um, but I have, um, but one of the things that, I was blessed with in Parliament was people from different political parties, Martin Hughes, um, Jim Shannon, Gavin Robinson. I was blessed with support from across the political spectrum. And I haven't even named the people, yeah, my best friends on my side, but I was, um, uh, there were some Tory members and others who um, were just amazing to Mm. me. I like asking that question. I've started asking it to pretty much every political guest I have on because, um, you know, just to, to demonstrate how, you know, you, you made the point yourself earlier on the show as to how there are so many cross-party politics, uh, uh, cross-party friendships. And I I can't stand tribalism, so I like highlighting that. <laughs> if you could have any uh, three people dead or alive over for a dinner party, who who would they be, Ruth? Oh, my God. <laughs> um... Uh, okay, that is not easy. No, it's not. It's um, not. That's really three people isn't easy at all. So Ernie Bevin, who I spoke about before, yeah. because political hero. Oh, although that means I can't have Hugh Gates girl because that. But all right, but Ernie Bevin or Hugh Gates girl, whoever was around. <laughs> um, I um, uh, yes, I would have Michelle Obama because I think that what she's done is extraordinary. And her grace and class have been pretty impressive. Um, oh, and I, I come from the tradition in the Labour Party that likes winning elections. Yeah, God forbid. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Alistair Campbell probably. I mean, I, I feel like I've totally been put on the spot because it was you know someone like Alistair Campbell to talk to me about winning elections because. It's felt like a very long time since we did. I'm um I'm reading his book Winners at the moment and it's it's pretty good actually. 
I'm enjoying it. He writes beautifully. Yeah, yeah he's, he's, he's a good mm-hmm. writer. Finally, I can't not ask you what a best advice has ever been given to you. And the reason for that is because for listeners who will remember on when Jess Phillips was on, I asked her the same question and one of the best pieces of advice she was given was by your mum. Uh, so uh, I'm assuming you she, you must have got lots of wisdom passed down uh, from your mum. But um, in, no, on a serious note, like what what um, what are the best? Oh, so my mum, uh, well, my mum's a piece of advice for Jess and for me always. She gets very frustrated when I forget to put lipstick on before I do an interview. Um, but for um, which I would always do, it drives me crazy. Um, I think it's um, probably the best ever piece of advice I had was to listen and to learn one of my one of my mentors um he was regional director of the labor of the labor party and adopted basically adopted me when i was 18 and took me on my political journey and he was always the person that stands at an event and you'll know this as a politico there's always someone that stands at a political event and watches to see what's about to go wrong and fixes it just before it goes wrong um and you can only have that skill if you're if you very uh, if you're politically tuned in and you're very aware of the of the audience that you're with. Um, and to do that, you've got to listen and observe. And I, that was probably I had a lot to learn. I still do. I think we all do. But stepping back and keeping your mouth shut till you know what's going on—that's never a bad thing. Yeah, and that came from him. That's that's really that's great, Rue. Thank you so much for for coming on pleasure i've really enjoyed it thanks for having me laura i hope you enjoyed the episode if you did please share the word share the link with your friends and family and if you didn't then please don't tell anyone and if there are people you'd like to hear from do let me know you can get in touch via twitter i'm at laura round and finally i have some good news Big Tent have introduced a special offer for podcast listeners, so you can now join the Big Tent as a friend to access many exclusive benefits, such as intimate events with leaders from politics, business, tech, arts, and just use the code PODCAST at the checkout to receive three whole months for free as a pay monthly member. It's extraordinary good value, so go to bigtent.org.uk for full details. Thanks, and until the next time.